right off the bat, it's not really a good story about a castle unless the castle is haunted. Other podcasts can talk about its hanging tapestries, its elegant rooms, long hallways, vast grounds, and amazing feats of architecture. But around here, we like our castles haunted. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because... We all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. America isn't really recognized for its castles, but that isn't going to stop us from putting our hat into the castle game. But who knew there was such a high concentration of these massive structures located in Washington State? And, to my giddy delight, I've discovered that 90% are haunted, making this so much more interesting. We'll start off with the smallest one, but by far has the most curious history and probably the most hauntings. And actually, thanks to a listener for putting this historical structure on our radar. Gessner's Castle, or it's sometimes referred to as the Georgetown Castle. I couldn't find enough information for it to have an episode all by itself, but when I found out that there were several castles in the state of Washington, the game was on. Its colorful history comes from its original owner, Peter Gessner. Gessner was already doing quite well in the seedier part of town, running gaming, drinks, and dames at the Central Tavern in the growing town of Seattle. He was in the process of building a home for his wife in the quieter part of town, the still very new Georgetown. It was going to be spectacular, according to his specifications. Nine bedrooms, bay windows, a round turret facing the street, gardens, and an elegant wraparound porch. It was going to be the most elegant home for miles around. The problem came when his wife opted not to wait for her own personal castle and chose to live with a chicken farmer. Rumor had it that she just might have been with child at the time. No great loss, Gessner decided to move into his castle himself. By 1902, the Seattle police halted his gaming tables. So instead of living in the great home all alone, he decided to bring his business to the castle. The gaming and drinking and the brotheling were in full swing when, less than a year later, Peter Gessner was found in his room, dead. His death was documented to be a suicide, but rumors swirled that he could have easily have been murdered. According to how they found the body, his death was sure to have been painful and torturous before he was able to take his last breath. His lips, tongue, and esophagus was dissolved away in sections from the carbolic acid that he drank or was forced down his throat. The business continued on without him, and before it was all said and done, two of the ladies had died, one by murder and one by suicide. The one who took her own life is known as Mary. She was with child and was locked in the turret to keep her out of sight of the customers. After her baby was born, it was taken from her, murdered, and buried on the grounds. Unable to stand the separation, she took her own life. Another story says that Gessner's niece came to live with him, 
and under these circumstances, I'm not really sure if niece meant something other than his sister-in-law's child, but from what I could gather, she either really was his niece, or that's what they called her to hide their affair, or she was just one of the girls, but apparently she died too. As the house lay vacant for several years, the town built up around it and stories would be passed on about Peter Gessner refusing to leave his home and the three girls that are seen and heard wandering about the home. Doors opening and closing, footsteps, crying, cold spots. Every once in a while, someone would catch a glimpse of the ghosts. The girls were easy to tell apart. One had dark hair and one had light brown or red hair. And the third never came down from the turret. Some would say there was a ghost of a, quote, elderly woman with coal-black eyes and a long white dress, clutching her throat with one hand and striking out with the other, end quote. I couldn't find out who the elderly woman might have been. But the most chilling of all was the sound of a baby's cry that could be heard while walking through the gardens or standing quietly on the porch. The home went through a few businesses over the years, finally becoming a respectable boarding house. Tenants Ray McQuaid and Peter Pedersen were there in the 1970s and would share their stories from their time living in the home. One, they would report, was the, quote, found a tiny room that had been completely walled off with an unnaturally frigid cold spot, end quote. McQuaid said that he, quote, regularly heard what sounded like vicious brawls upstairs, end quote. I believe he said that he was underneath Gessner's room. Another story told that late one night, a guest looking for a snack wondered aloud where the bread might be. A loaf rolled down the counter from the pantry. It doesn't hurt that the castle sits on burial grounds of the Duwamish people. The grounds were disturbed when the river was rerouted. They hate when people do that. Today, the castle is privately owned by Mom Linda Bazan and her son, Micah Schled. They do not allow anyone entrance into the building, but while they were remodeling, they did allow three paranormal investigation teams to check the place out. All the teams were pleased to discover that the stories were true. The mother and son duo decided not to let the ghosts run them off. They painted the outside with bright colors and revamped the grounds with a variety of gardens. As for the ghosts, Linda is quoted as saying, quote, I think the spirits are appeased. I think they were pleased with all the work we've done. End quote. Question. How much do you love your spouse? Do you just love your spouse or do you relocate a 400-year-old, 27,000-square-foot Elizabethan manor from England, love your spouse. Chester Thorne was the latter. He and his bride had been married for just over 20 years when he plotted out the perfect piece of Pacific Northwest property with views of both Mount Rainier and American Lake. He hired renowned architect Kirtland Kelsey Cutter, to oversee the arrival and reconstruction of the English castle for his beloved Anna. It took three massive ships to relocate the stones, oak paneling, oak staircase, and several of the doors, which had to travel around Cape Horn to the Pacific Northwest. On the 100-acre grounds, the massive structure was being constructed with a three-foot steel and concrete foundation with the steel-supporting concrete and brick walls, 
Each of the floors were 10 inches thick with tiled roof. It took three years to complete, and by 1911, it was finished. 54 rooms, 22 of them are bedrooms, and another 22 are bathrooms. Thorne hired the Olmsted Brothers landscape architecture firm to plan the grounds. Before work began, tons of rich Nisqually River soil were laid out 18 inches deep across the land. 37 of the 100 acres were transformed into a formal English garden. A sunken garden was built next to the home off a special room built especially for Anna. All of the other rooms in the house were designed to face the lake, but Anna's sitting room was facing Mount Rainier, overlooking what Anna called her secret garden. Their website says Chester hired the local Native American laborer to help with the massive undertaking from 1907 to 1911. It reads, quote, Following their traditions, these Native American workers cut and hung numerous wishbone sticks around the foundation walls in the basement during the construction. In their tradition, these help protect from evil spirits and bring good fortune to the house in the future, as well as provide protection to the workers, end quote. The Robinsons, Wayne, Indiana, purchased the property in 2000, being the fifth owners of Thornwood. Deanna says, quote, None of the previous owners before us touched these, instead leaving these original wishbone sticks hanging in place. We will as well, end quote. This is Thornwood Castle. The Thorns would live at the castle until their deaths. After 41 years of marriage, Chester died in October of 1927, and Anna waited another 27 years before dying peacefully in her home in 1954. Their only daughter, Anita, would stay in the home and raise her family there as well. They were attended by over 40 servants and 28 gardeners attended the gardens. It has now been transformed into a hotel and event venue for a while now. Most recently, it was seen on the small Netflix screen as the backdrop for the Netflix original series, The Haunting of Bly Manor. This was not the first time that Thornwood Castle was a co-star in a theatrical world. All the way back in 1927, Chester Thorne himself caught the Hollywood bug and invested in the production of H.C. Weaver Studios, based in Tacoma, Washington, and he allowed the film The Eyes of the Totem to be filmed on the property. But probably the most famous was the ABC television miniseries where Thornwood Castle was cast as the main character, Rose Red, that was filmed in the year 2000. This was the Stephen King's original script about a castle that was haunted, and, by the way, was the first one following his horrific accident. This is also the first time that I could find that the hauntings happening inside the castle came to light. The cast and crew would talk about their tools going missing. Sometimes they'd find them again, other times not. There were odd power outages. The doors opened and closed on their own sometimes interfering with filming scenes. In 2003, the castle was used again for the prequel to Rose Red, The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, and then in 2007, the exterior of the castle shows up in the Daniel Day-Lewis film, There Will Be Blood. Apparently, the ghosts who still linger at Thornwood are not big fans of all the modernization that's happened to their happy home. 
The most prominent ghost, it's not surprising, is its creator, Chester Thorne, still supervising, still overseeing all that happens in his domain. Thorne was one of the very few who financially survived the Panic of 1893. While other banks and businesses failed across America, Thorne was able to stabilize his own bank and not only keep the doors open, but manage to prosper. In his life, he was a most respected and beloved member of a growing community. At his funeral, it was said, quote, Few men achieve and hold such a place in the esteem and affections of the community as did Mr. Thorne in the city of Tacoma, end quote. He is most commonly felt in the room that was his. The light bulbs are often found unscrewed. He is not a fan of the fancy-schmancy lighting options available. After months of thinking it was an electrical problem, it was discovered that the bulbs somehow came unscrewed. Over and over again. He is also seen following a repeatable pattern walking across the manicured lawns or standing along the edge waiting for the activities to cease so he can go riding. Chester would probably be happy with all the weddings that take place on the property since his wife took such great care to design the most beautiful gardens. She is actually seen looking out the window from the window seat in her room overlooking her garden. Anna's original room is now the bridal suite and more than one bride has mentioned an additional reflection when they look in the mirror. That would terrify me on my wedding day, I would think. The Thornwood Castle would come alive with parties and galas long before it became a wedding venue that takes reservations years in advance. The Thorns themselves were fond of a good shindig every once in a while, Deanna Robinson would talk about a time she accidentally interrupted one of their elegant galas. Quote, One late afternoon, shortly after moving in, Deanna was all alone in the great hall reading a book. Suddenly the hall was filled with the sounds of a noisy cocktail party. She heard people walking and dancing across the floor, the clinking of glasses and the mutter of conversation. It sounded like 100 invisible people had suddenly appeared. Deanna felt like an intruder. It was their house and their party. She believed that they somehow felt her presence and it disturbed them. It was like they were real and she was the ghost. It disturbed and frightened her. And she said, Okay, you guys have fun. I'm going away now. End quote. It has been noted that Mr. and Mrs. Thorne have been seen on the staircase wearing formal attire, her arm entwined with his. They don't move or interact just blip on, and then they're gone again. Unfortunately, we know that many hauntings happen because of something tragic. Thornwood is no exception. One of Anita's children accidentally died either in the lake or in one of the fountains, and she is seen either sitting on the front balcony looking towards the water or standing beside one of the fountains found on the property. They say her ghost is extremely shy and reserved, much like her living persona, and a glimpse of her spirit is a rare and coveted event. Her son is seen standing or walking along the edges of the lake. When a guest of Thornwood saw the child from the garden, by the time she reached the water, he was gone, with no signs he was ever there at all. According to the Washington State Ghost Society, who was allowed to have a paranormal investigation at Thornwood Castle, 
they discovered the gold room had the most active spirit. It's believed it was a servant and was very active during their investigation. There were multiple hits from all the devices set up in this room. They also caught a solid visual of a woman with a turn-of-the-century clothing, high-neck corset, with her dark hair up high in a bun. There was an apparition of a man with a mustache, brown hair, brown suit, and tie that was also caught on film. The overpowering smell of cherry pipe tobacco was also evident in one of their rooms. According to writer Sherry Granado, quote, Guests of the castle never stop reporting the obvious paranormal activity that includes the appearance of ghosts, lights turning on and off at will, and a peaceful energy that fills the castle. The crew responsible for filming Rose Red claims that a lamp in the ballroom goes on and off at will, and during high tea an apparition appeared for more than 30 guests. End quote. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Ground broke in 1891. This was going to be the hotel to stand above all hotels, built before or after. Writer Priscilla Long states it was going to be, quote, so grand, so elegant, so ornate, so artful, so huge, so splendid, that other grand hotels would blush with shame at their own silly presentations, end quote. A worker, Thomas Ripley, would talk about its visions of grandeur, quote, Blueprints covered desks and the floor. We measured baseboards and casing by the mile. We foresaw a jungle of carving in rare and exotic woods. It was a riot of millwork, end quote. It was being built on top of a hill overlooking Commencement Bay. Just down the hill from the future castle was a community of shanties that were built for women who lost their husbands, who were either temporarily or forever lost at sea due to the dangerous conditions of deep-sea fishing at the time. The women and their families were barely scraping by and could be seen looking out over the ocean waiting for their men to return home to rescue them from their depressed existence. This tiny little community had zero effect on the future of Pacific Northwest's Grand Hotel Venture. Needless to say, further, this, um, unnamed hotel was going to be amazing. It was only referred to as Brown's Castle, and that's because it barely got its footing before every dream was dashed. The Panic of 1893 hit the state of Washington pretty hard. 
most of the beginning of the ends of these castles stem from 1893. The crumbling of the planned Northern Pacific Railroad took its toll, and many of the towns in Washington were actually created to accommodate the new railroad. Construction was immediately halted, and the walls and roof were all that had gotten completed from all the grand blueprints. Eventually it was used to store wood and shingles and other supplies from the hotel plans and other ventures. On October 11, 1898, five years after the shires that pointed skyward silently had been built, a huge fire attempted to bring them to the ground. The glow could be seen all the way to Seattle, about 50 miles away. It was then the owners of the shell of the greatest hotel that would have ever been decided on demolition. They began disassembling the bricks to be used in other railroad depots in Idaho. And just then, fate walked by. Literally. Members of the Tacoma School District happened to be passing as crews worked to take apart what had become a familiar part of the landscape. They saw their potential for a future in the building. They found the means to halt the demolition and, in 1904, completely gutted it and began the redesign to turn it into a high school. With the help of architect Frederick Heath, the first classes of the brand new Tacoma High School were finally offered in September of 1906. The high school continued to improve and expand. In seven years' time, they added a football field with stands, referring to it as the Stadium Bowl as it sinks down low into what was called Old Woman's Gulch, the aforementioned poverty-stricken community of seamen's wives. The school also added an underground swimming pool, a gymnasium, a circular cafe, multi-level parking garage, and even tennis courts on the roof. Waste not, want not. In the 1990s, the school was used for the filming of the movie Ten Things I Hate About You, which was a modern retelling of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. The movie starred Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger and was released in 1999. Classic movie. The ghosts that still walk the halls of the Stadium High School are said to be one of a teenage girl who committed suicide in one of the bathrooms. I bet if she thought she was going to be trapped in her high school bathroom for all eternity, she would have thought twice. Just saying. Another ghost, a girl, can be seen wandering down the long corridors of the school after dark. It's said that she will tap against lockers as she passes or open doors that are supposed to be locked. The school offers ghost tours after hours to visit the areas that even the students aren't allowed to go, thus the visuals of the hallway girl and there's also said to be a spirit that hangs out in the boiler room. But the most common sightings of ghosts, and several students have been witnesses, comes from looking out over their football field stadium. The very one where Heath Ledger sang Frankie Valley's Can't Take My Eyes Off You in the movie Ten Things I Hate About You. Sorry, sidetracked. The football stadium, as I mentioned, was built over the shanties of the Old Woman's Gulch. Many times women in the 1900s garbs have been seen wandering close to the edge. History tells stories of the women feeling hopeless for their future. Many were pregnant or had several children already and would throw themselves over the edge, ending their lives. Some of the women still wait for their seafaring mates to return home. 
As the whispers of the new railroad system that was going to bring growth to the Pacific Northwest, towns were scrambling to prepare for the onslaught of money that was destined to come their way and make them rich beyond their wildest dreams. Only those who were true and fearless entrepreneurs and had something to invest were going to reap. James F. Wardner was one of those men. In fact, he loved the thrill of risk. He loved being on the precipice of the hint of something greater. His favorite pastime, get in quick, make his money, and get back out, only to do it again in some other area that caught his interest. It seems fortuitous, then, that he should be riding a train at just the right time. In 1889, he was accompanied by Nelson Bennett, who happened to strike up a conversation about the Pacific Northern Railway. It was Bennett's goal to put the small town of Fairhaven on the map, the railroad being the perfect opportunity to grow it into a metropolis. The town's originator, Dan Harris, who plotted the original town site in 1883, sold it to Nelson Bennett and their newly formed Fairhaven Land Company in 1888. To add to the validity of his claims, I mean, an investor just can't go jumping into any old thing willy-nilly, Bennett told his fellow passenger that he also created the Fairhaven and Southern Railway Company in December of 1888 and promoted the possibilities of a railway to come from the Canadian border to the Columbia River. If things went well, that would mean two railways crossing into Fairhaven. Oh, the possibilities. Inspired, Wardner jumped off at the next station and turned back to Fairhaven to take advantage of this newly acquired opportunity. I wonder what Bennett thought when his seatmate never returned to his seat. According to register documents, quote, Wardner, an ambitious entrepreneur who acquired his wealth in lumber, mining, and real estate, but who also dabbled in innumerable other ventures throughout the United States and abroad, is counted among a small group of men who were the creators and developers of the Fairhaven boom in late 1880s and early 1890s, end quote. He wasted no time in purchasing 135 plots of land, which he promptly sold more than doubling his investment in less than 60 days. With this new money, he poured into the infrastructure of the city. He invested in the Fairhaven Waterworks Company and also the Fairhaven Electric Light Company, and then in the Fairhaven National Bank, securing his position as president. He bought and sold a coal mining company and invested in a logging company. Securing the groundwork just short of becoming its mayor, it was time to build his castle. Something to show the community and then the world what a great man he is. In 1890, he chose to keep his largest, most prestigious, and best-placed corner lot to build his home. It would look out over the town and the bay. He hired the very same architect that built the Thornwood Castle, Kirtland K. Cutter. According to Fairhaven history, quote, The Queen Anne-style house consisted of 23 rooms, seven of which were bedrooms for his large family, six fireplaces, three on the first floor and three on the second floor, were embellished with carved wood mantelpieces, colored glass windows, ceramic tiles, handle lamps, and fir and oak woodwork provided a grand interior. 
a port cocheur offered a sheltered entry for visitors, and a twelve-foot turret room provided a breathtaking view of the Puget Sound and surrounding islands. The Wardner family occupied their mansion for only one year before Jim Wardner decided to pursue more lucrative ventures, reading signs for an approaching end to the Fairhaven boom. Selling his castle to investor and partner Peter Larson, Wardner took his family on a grand world tour before embarking on further adventures and misadventures. James F. Wardner died in El Paso, Texas in 1905. As we are now coming to anticipate, the Great Northern Railway opted in another direction and the Panic of 1893 also hit this little town as well. James Wardner was able to get out of Dodge literally before experiencing the financial strain as mentioned in the quote from Fairhaven's history. The Department of Interior National Park Service would say, quote, Wardner was a recognized public figure because of his real estate dealings and his involvement in so many aspects of the town's commercial life. He quite enjoyed his public image as a flamboyant, self-made man, financially shrewd and aggressive. He was in some ways profanely ostentatious, and his anecdotal autobiography attest he had an immense appetite for living high and moving fast. End quote. Now, James Wardner had some peculiar rumors surrounding him. Some want to believe that it was just his sarcastic sense of humor, but then there are a few reports that lay claim to them possibly being factual. I'll just lay it all out for you, and then you can decide. The subject is cats, black cats in particular. An article in the Fairhaven History reads, quote, Noted for his good humor and whimsical nature, Wardner launched one of the more outrageous hoaxes of the day. Joking with a young reporter in the Fairfield Herald, Wardner announced a new venture on Eliza Island to raise black cats, selling their pelts for a profit on the fur market. He called his venture the Consolidated Black Cat Company Limited. Due to Wardner's reputation, the story was spread in media across the nation and a number of investors lined up with hope of cashing in on the novel venture. Sadly, the only riches spawned were the incipient seeds of legend. End quote. However, Edward Davidson, who owned the Wardner's castle for a time, would claim that Within Wardner's autobiography, which is basically a thin pamphlet of his memories, it would dedicate a full section to, quote, my cat ranch, end quote. Then I started my cat ranch. It would begin, quote, much has been said and much has been written about my celebrated cat ranch located on an island about six miles from Fairhaven, Washington. So many bright writers have been there and have seen my novel experiment and speculation that I will let them tell the story themselves. I must, however, remark that, although the product did not equal my anticipation, I cannot blame Mr. Samuel Weller of Cincinnati, who was my sole manager and purveyor to the cats. This gentleman was a cat man, and his father was a cat man before him. If he finally erred in judgment, it was from excessive zeal, and I forgive him. Now, as all my visitors, like my cats, had tails, let us listen a bit. Then he went on to share numerous newspaper reports that have been published around the topic. 
He would continue to explain that he would gather up all the stray cats and keep them out on this island. When they got to be the right size, they would be killed and skinned. He would sell the skins to fur traders for $2, telling them that they were actually hooded seals. Apparently, the people weren't too upset with that part of things. It was when they found out that he was feeding the cat meat in a broth to the other cats when the citizens became unglued. The Seattle Times would write, quote, Black Cat Company sells its ranch. We are reliably informed by Mr. Samuel Walker, late general manager and purveyor to Wardner's Black Cats, that the vicious and cannibalistic experiment of putting cat into cats by means of soup resulted disastrously to the cats. He says that Mr. Wardner's idea of an endless chain won't work in this industry. He says that any company can make a conservative profit raising black cats on fish and selling their hides only, but to use these cats as an article of food for one another is avarice and promotes cannibalism, end quote. Um, wouldn't that be catabolism? <laughs> Just, I mean, wouldn't it? No one wants to even touch on the thought that he might have been selling the meat to local restaurants. There is a restaurant there called Le Chat Noir in town. Did I mention that? Just kidding. The bistro wasn't open until 1987. But what a great name, right? In 2016, Sarah Hartwell would do an amazing amount of research on the slant of cat ranches and would report, quote, the cat ranch, which featured regularly in U.S. newspapers between the 1880s and 1910s, was a get-rich-quick scheme that turned out to be a hoax. Frequently revived, it parted an unknown number of investors from their money, end quote. She does go on to say that Wardner did not create the scam, but that his story was spread so far and so wide that no one would believe his claims that it was false. Ms. Harwell goes on to write, quote, Plagued by would-be investors, Wardner tried to debunk the fast-spreading tale, but it spread faster than the rebuttals. So Wardner told reporters that he had turned over the trials and tribulations of constantly increasing the cat business to Sam Weller, who was a wizard with cats. Having appointed the fictitious ranch manager, Wardner escaped by going gold prospecting in the Cascade Mountains, end quote. Side note, he never actually denies the cat ranch, only deflects. There's only one juicy haunting tale, and it's fairly recent in the grand scheme of things. In 1984, the Harriman family, who owned the mansion at the time and were operating a bed and breakfast, commissioned a local artist named Lori Gospodinovich to paint a mural on the third floor. The mural included the house, James Wardner in a prominent position, and a few other floating heads of family members. Not sure if they were a Wardner family or the Harriman family, but the painting also included some black cats and a full moon. The artist also tucked a cameo of herself in there as well. She titled it Spirits of Wardner's Castle. But here's the kicker. The day after the mural was complete, the 24-year-old artist died in a car accident. The mural was displayed until the home was sold, and the next owners didn't appreciate it so much. They decided to paint over the entire mural with paint. According to the Bellingham observers of the Odd and Obscure, 
The activities began once the mural was covered. The owners began to hear footsteps on the stairs and in the turret room. The floors would creak even though no one was moving around in the rooms. Due to the guests complaining of seeing apparitions in their room, the feeling of being watched, and others would say they had bizarre dreams after they left, the owners stripped the paint from the part where Linda's face was, and the hauntings stopped, practically overnight. As a mother of grown daughters, and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings, I always let my people know where and when I'm going places, but to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety, and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. The Congdon Castle, otherwise known as Westholm, is the most castle looking castle of the whole lot, but I can't really find a lot of information on it. The owners are very private, so there's no tours or anything like that. I did find that it was built in 1916 in Yakima from rocks that were quarried the, from the nearby painted rocks and has stayed in the same family since its inception. As early as the 1890s, Chester Congdon was gathering parcels of land in and around the Yakima Valley. Chester Congdon had it built as a summer home for the family that call Michigan their home. Even though it is massive, they say it's not considered a formal home. Unfortunately, Chester never got to see the finished project as he died the same year it was completed. And that is pretty much where the information stops. He must have been the social one. The Historic Seattle writes, quote, The 30,000 square foot house is a symphony in rough-hewn timbers and stone. It features hand-hammered metal hinges, hardware and lighting fixtures, leaded glass doors and windows, painted murals, various sizes and colors of brick and tile by important art tile manufacturers, and built-in or commissioned furniture, end quote. From a former guest of the family, I found, quote, I have stayed at Westholm as a guest of one of the descendants of Chester Congdon, the builder of Westholm. There have been almost no changes to Westholm since it was finished in 1916. Yes, there is a very large swimming pool in the bottom level along with the boiler room and the caretaker's quarters. On the main level, in addition to the master suite, there are two two-bedroom suites, the living room, the dining room, the butler's pantry, kitchen, which has several food storage rooms, an office, an enclosed sunroom, and the entrance to the tower and the upper floors. 
On the second level, there are seven bedrooms, some with bathrooms attached, and some that have to share common bathrooms. There is also a small kitchen, a billiard room and ballroom, and a room for table tennis. There are several levels up beyond this to the tower, end quote. Before Chester Congdon passed away, people remember the home being accessible and even open to picnics and events for the employees and their families. Even as late as 1976, trolleys were making regular runs out to show off the outside of the house and the beautiful grounds and orchards. There were even tours that were allowed inside during specific times. Things became a bit more quiet once he died, and then in 1987, it became closed off to the public in every way. Congdon, an attorney by trade, was also involved with his orchards. He is said to have engineered and financed the construction of one of the earliest irrigation projects in eastern Washington, which remains in operation today. His system was able to open up 3,000 acres of farmland in West Yakima for himself and his neighbors. Today, Congdon Orchards farms roughly 1,200 acres of apples, pears, cherries, and walnuts. At one time, they ran the largest cherry orchard in the world. In July of 2020, the orchard merged with Sage Fruit Company to, quote, enhance the marketing, sale, and distribution of its apples, pears, and cherries, end quote. I would definitely love to see it, but for the sake of this episode, I heard of no spooky happenings. Maybe one day when the news gets out and we'll find all kinds of spooky things that had been happening tucked behind the orchards of Washington. However, I do have a caveat for you. If you want to peek inside the home, there's a video, and the link is in the show notes, a band called Rust on the Rails was granted permission to film their video in the castle. Oh, and it's not a bad song, either. Charles Eisenbeis arrived in Port Townsend, Washington as an emigrant from Prussia in 1858. Like James Wardner, he dove in to make the town his own. He had no money when he and his brother Frederick first arrived, so they got odd jobs around the small town. After a few weeks using all his earned money, Charles opened a tiny bakery. Using the skills that he learned from his father back home, he begins baking and selling crackers and ship's bread. His business was booming, so he purchased his first commercial building. From there, he wanted to build onto his bakery, so he made his own bricks to add to the structure. By 1889, he creates a brick foundry. The city was literally growing around him, and he had his hand in the whole way. He eventually expanded into the brewery business, banking, and real estate. At some point, he was married, and by the time his wife died in 1882, she had given him four children. He marries again to Kate and adds another four to his family. By 1878, the Prussian immigrant, without a penny to his name after arriving, is elected as the first mayor of Port Townsend. In 1890, Charles donated property and building materials for the construction of a Port Townsend hospital. In 1891, Charles builds the massive 120-room Hotel Eisenbeis in anticipation of the Pacific Northern Railway. And in 1892, he used the last of the bricks from his own brickyard to build his family a castle. 
It was three stories tall with an attic and a basement. The walls were twelve inches thick, thirty rooms with tiled fireplaces and elegantly sculpted woodwork, and every modern comfort available to Charles for his family. At last he could rest. <sighs> Except you know what happens next. The panic of 1893 knocked everyone for a loop. Charles lost thousands and thousands of dollars, and even though he tried to remain positive, the emotions were running hot and the citizens lashed out with businessmen and those with money calling them robber barons. The Hotel Eisenbeis never opened for a single guest and was mysteriously destroyed by a fire. It was later reincarnated into the Northwest Sanatorium. In 1902, Charles Eisenbeis dies of Bright's disease, which is a form of kidney disease. His wife Kate remarries and moves away from the castle, and it stands empty for 20 years. In 1925, an attorney purchases the castle, but sold it in 1927 to Jesuit priests to use as their training college. In the next year, the college adds on with the chapel and additional sleeping rooms, and even added the first elevator in Port Townsend. And then they slapped stucco over the entire building covering all of Charles's bricks in order to make the building look uniform. They renamed it Manresa Hall. In 1968, the Jesuits sold the building and it was turned into a hotel. The chapel was turned into a ballroom or event space and all the modern amenities were added. Side note. In 1981, the cast and crew of An Officer and a Gentleman began filming in Port Townsend, and when they ran out of space at the other local hotels, Paramount cut a deal with the Manresa to add more bathrooms so the spillover cast and crew would have a place to stay, with a bathroom. Thanks to the movie deal, the Manresa went from a three-bathroom hotel to 43. <laughs> Just recently, the Manresa Castle sold again for $1.9 million. The various owners of the hotel would go back and forth as to whether they believed or rather endorsed that it was haunted. Some tried to play it down, thinking it was bad for business. Others embraced it, believing it was great for business. If it is haunted, the ghosts don't care who is at the helm. Haunters gonna haunt. For a while, a logbook was left in the rooms that had the most ghostly activity for guests to record their experiences. But when future guests read the experiences of others, they asked for a room change, so the logbook was removed. When guests would come to the front desk to share their stories, that's when they were added to the logbook. The ghost that most have heard from is the priest that hung himself in the uppermost turret. The stories vary so wildly that I couldn't possibly include them all here, and they're all so completely different. But someone, a male, most likely a Jesuit priest or student, hung himself from the rafters. And now if you are staying in room 302, which is directly below, you will be able to hear the footsteps above you. And just to note, I couldn't find any record of a priest or anyone died from a hanging in the building. The other popular story, again wildly different, speaks of a young woman who was with child, probably hiding out at the college until her baby was born. 
discovers that the father of her child will not be coming to retrieve her. In some stories he dies, others he faked his death, others he denies knowing her. Anyway, not being able to face the stigma of being an unwed mother throws their lives away by launching herself from the third story window. Julie from Longview, Washington, left this review about her stay at the castle. Quote, We heard moaning when there was no one around. We heard footsteps and something tapping the wall or handrail but did not see anyone. Fingers stroked my friend's back while she was sitting on the love seat in our room. I walked barefooted into the bathroom and after I stopped walking, I heard one more footstep. Our pendulums swung wildly when we asked questions. These are the experiences we were hoping for. I gave a good rating because nothing beats a quirky castle and a paranormal experience. End quote. The entity of Father John Alden Murphy is said to be present on the grounds. The Olympic Peninsula Paranormal Society found a 1943 newspaper article that told of his drowning in Puget Sound, though his body was never found. His clothes were neatly folded on the shore. Father John Alden Murphy's death certificate states that his death was assumed to be accidental. There was no suicide note, and yet, a figure can be seen walking along the edge of the water, but then just disappears. Charles's son, Charles Jr., killed himself in the basement of the Baker Building in Port Townsend on September 29, 1897. It's suspected that he made his way back to the family home. It's believed he killed himself due to the pressure of so many businesses closing down after the 1893 panic and he knew his turn was coming soon. He ran the grocery and general store with his father. It's his spirit that's being blamed when guests feel that they are being watched. Room 306 apparently has a ghost all to itself. You won't tell anyone who she is, but she definitely likes to make herself known. According to the logbook, she has been seen standing by the window looking out across the bay. She has long brown hair and is wearing a white gown. Guests have been known to find their dresser drawers left open and their items moved. Sometimes their shoes would go missing. Others have heard a female voice singing in the bathroom in the late hours of darkness. She has also been known to sit on the edge of the bed or tug at the covers, with the guests still in the bed. In the banquet hall, Glasses have been known to shatter in front of people for no apparent reason. In calmer moments, as the catering crew sets up for an event, the glasses are turned upside down. When they come back, the glasses are facing up. The Olympic Peninsula Paranormal Society caught some EVPs when investigating the Manresa Castle and do suggest that the spirits residing here include a woman who can speak German or a foreign language at least one male of authority, and in January of 2010, they reported, quote, In total, we had seven DVR cameras running from 5 p.m. until about 6 a.m., a total of over 2,000 photos and multiple audio recorders running all night long. We had 51 EVP EAPs, a total of personal experiences and some video, end quote. One was supposedly the voice of a female speaking German that was ensuring everything would be all right. 
One of the images clearly shows a woman they believe is Kate Eisenbeis sitting in the dining room in a long Victorian gown with a high collar. And finally, according to an article posted on October 24th in 2018, Kimberly Smith, the front desk manager at Manresa Castle, has worked for the hotel under both the previous and current owners and said the hauntings weren't as promoted under the current owners whom she described as more neutral to the phenomena. Quote, We still have a lot of people who see things, though, Smith said. We hear from them at least two or three times a week, so it's still going on. When asked to describe the nature of the phenomena, Smith characterized it as nothing negative or evil. They just seem to be making their presence known. In addition to Manresa's castle's more infamous spectral guests, Smith has received accounts of a sad, unseen violinist, as well as a giggling child and a woman named Natalie. End quote. And that will do it for this week's episode of Bag of Bones Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's look into the haunted castles of Washington. Did you have a favorite? Or, even better, have you stayed in any of them? I would love to know. You can connect with me on Facebook or Instagram, shoot me an email at my website, elizabethbougeret.com, and also, photos of each of the castles discussed today can be seen at the ragtagnetwork.com forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.